Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Dunzo. This is a podcast that explores hookups and breakups of famous lovers and friends, both real and fake and all the discarded pop culture of yesteryear. I'm your host, Troy McKeady. You guys, welcome to episode 165 of Dunzo. It's me, Troy McKeady. And it's just us gal pals. It is just us for the first time in... What's it been, like, 11 weeks or something, or 10 weeks? I don't know. It's been a long time. Um, Hi. How's it going? I feel like I need to get reacquainted. God, do we even know each other anymore? Jesus, fuck. Um, This feels good. I'm not going to lie to you. It feels good to just be sitting here with you and talking. I know that you've already read the episode title. I know that you've already read the description. You know that I'm freaking out. I know that you're freaking out. Like, this is a big deal. This is a milestone event. This is a huge deal. We'll talk all about it. I just want to like get reacquainted for a second here. Um, Fuck. I I don't even know if I remember how to do this. First of all, it's been a really long time since I hosted by myself. Okay. Let me just start by saying, I'm sorry that it's been so long since we've done a solo dolo episode. I know. Listen, I've gotten a lot of DMS. I've gotten a lot of messages And emails and things from people just being like, hi, I really like your podcast. (laughs) I really like your podcast. It's really fun, et cetera, et cetera. Your guests all seem really, really nice, like amazing people. But can you do an episode alone? And like, you have to understand that my, like, I, I naturally can't wrap my head around that. Like, I don't understand the logic in wanting to sit and listen to me talking to a fucking blue yeti so like i don't get that but it's really not for me to get like you guys like it and i'm extremely appreciative and here we are so i'm 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 really really fucking excited about this like i'm really excited to just allow this to be uh whatever it's gonna be i don't know how long we're gonna talk about christina aguilera i don't know how long we're gonna talk about Xtina. i have no idea but uh this is gonna be good like if you're a longtime listener of this podcast you deserve the episode slash episodes that you're about to get it has been a long time coming and i've put it off I've put it off basically since I started the podcast. Like, I mean, come on. Like, after episode one, it became pretty clear that I could do a Christina episode at any moment. But I just wasn't ready. I feel like I needed to go through all these different journeys. And I really needed to, like, what I needed to do was, like, say everything I feel like I've ever really needed to say about Britney. Because at this point, any Britney Spears episode that I do, I'm just sort of regurgitating things or you know, bringing up new, like, new ways of looking at old shit, you know what I mean? 
I needed to get all of that out of the way before doing this. I would never have been able to get through this had I not completed all that Britney stuff. I can really like get into this the way that I think it deserves to be to be gotten into. I'm really, really excited. I'm excited to work through my very complicated relationship with Christina Aguilera, my complicated feelings. And publicly, by the way, like I really have to hold myself accountable while doing this because I've praised this woman a lot. I've talked a lot of shit about her. I really, it's like, I've never really been able to grapple with like where I place Christina Aguilera in my life because she was introduced in such a complicated way. And I do think the conversation surrounding her is more interesting now than it was then. Like, it's really, really interesting to go back and view her as this, like, wannabe blues singer who, you know, probably thought if she did get signed that she would turn into, like, an Adele or something. And everything that sort of happened to her. And I feel like I have a very clear understanding of who she is now, now that I'm much older. Like, I feel like I really get her and it's not to say that I like her all the time or that I that I I like her personality or the way that she uh delivers or whatever. <laughs> She's a bitch, you know what I mean? But like I I feel like I I like get her and I get where it stems from now. Also, Christina has had some really interesting relationships. I mean, she's been in you know, some long-term intense marriages and she's had some PR moments and it's kind of been all over the place so I figured what we could do is just sort of like dance in and out of all these relationships like I'll just kind of go down the list of all the guys that she's dated while also just talking about her life and her public image and her music and I'm hoping to do some album reviews se like separately on Christina because I would really really like to do that um I'm, I'm a big fan of Christina's music there are some Christina albums that I've never really like delved into. So maybe I can do that during this whole thing. But like, this is going to be a series. I don't know how long it's going to run, but like, we're going to do this for like a little while. I do want to lay some groundwork before we really like get into it and get started because I know what you're thinking and I know what you're saying. And if you're in the car or in a room with somebody else, I know what you're saying to that person. You think that this is just going to be you know, me talking about Britney Spears for hours. This is just a Britney episode dressed up in some chaps with, you know, some some white and black dreadlock braids or whatever. And that's not, this is just a Britney episode with a black scent. And that's not what this is. I really am. I'm coming to this. I'm, I'm, I'm coming to this episode completely through the perspective of Christina Aguilera. It's been so interesting to view all of this this stuff that I love in this time period that I love through the perspective of somebody that I've never really given the opportunity to try and understand. Like a lot of this is new for me. I, I don't know Christina Aguilera's life like the back of my hand. I don't. A lot of it was new for me, but I'm so, she's like one degree separated from me, always separated. I just said that word weird, but you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, I just want to get that get that out of the way. This isn't just an excuse for me to do a Britney Spears episode. I really am being genuine right now. I also think there's so much about Christina's life that gets overlooked so frequently. And I think there are things about Christina Aguilera that outweigh... Um, the, I think a lot of the negative things about her publicly outweigh 
her contributions to the world. I mean, not just through pop music and, and being, you know, a musician, but her contributions to, you know, females in the music industry and like what women are allowed to say and, and allowed to wear and do and, and think and be and, you know, how a pop star is sort of supposed to be seen publicly. You know, Christina really came in guns ablaze. Like, we're going to get into all of it, obviously, but like this, this story is really fucking crazy. I've told you guys that when it comes to Christina, I sort of view her as this girl who, how do I say this? Like, she's basically spent her entire life screaming and stomping her feet to, like, be heard and be seen. And I don't blame her for that. Like, she's been really unfairly looked over, overlooked, overlooked, and cast aside. And, you know, this has been happening to her since she was a teenager. And I think as often as you hear stories about Christina being mean or being a diva or being, being cunty to people, it's like, I get why she has such a tough exterior because the industry has done nothing. Not, the, the industry has done no favors for Christina Aguilera since she was introduced to us. She's always been a very sort of like take no shit kind of girl, even as a teenager. And as an adult, I just feel like I relate I relate to her more than I ever did as a kid. Like, I didn't get her as a kid. I just thought she was, like, a bitchy, annoying girl. Like, I really didn't get it, but, like, now now, now I get it. Now I really understand the frustration she probably felt watching her counterpart pretend to be a good girl when she knew that her counterpart was not a good girl. Like Christina saw how the sausage was made. She saw who Britney Spears was behind the scenes. She saw who she was before walking out of those curtains on TRL. Christina knew where the bodies were buried. So yeah, like I understand the frustration of watching this girl be so good at playing the part when you yourself are unable to fake it. And you should be rewarded for not being able to fake it. You know what I mean? But where she was placed in pop music, like that wasn't, that wasn't the gig. I think there was a lot of, we see each other between Britney and Christina. You know what I mean? It was a lot of like, we're going to walk out on this fucking stage for MTV and we're going to smile and giggle and we'll both twirl our hair and I'll pop gum and you'll have bow legs and we'll do our thing. But like, we see each other. I, of course, want to start with her childhood because I think it plays such a major role in who she is as an artist. And I know she's explored a lot of her childhood trauma about her dad and stuff and her music, but I don't know. I just don't think it gets talked about a lot. And I also don't think she, I don't think that Christina made her rags to riches story as much of her public image as Britney's team did with her. Um, so you didn't hear you know, this like lifetime retelling of her story all the time. Whereas Britney couldn't do an interview without having to tell, you know, the 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 folklore tale of how a small town girl from Kentwood, you know, came from nothing and, and was living in the Bible Belt and blah, blah, blah. Like Christina's story was told, but it wasn't reiterated all the time, regurgitated all the time and beat into everybody's heads. Like, it was just a, a different kind of, uh, it was like a different way of marketing, I guess. Her mom is Irish and worked as an English teacher slash translator. And her dad was Ecuadorian and worked, well, he was in the army. 
And Christina was born in Staten Island, but immediately started moving wherever the army sort of sent them. And from what I gather, her dad, I mean, obviously we're going to talk about the fact that her dad was abusive, but her dad didn't even bother to tell his wife, girlfriend, whatever, where they would be moving to because he had such a lack of respect for her. So he would randomly one day walk up to her and be like, hey, pack for Japan tomorrow. Like, pull the kids out of school or whatever because we're moving to Honolulu, you know, this coming weekend. Like, just crazy. They also lived in Texas and New Jersey up until she turned seven. And around the time that Christina was seven or eight, her mom ended up saving all of this money to essentially escape her marriage. It was like a real Jennifer Lopez in Enough kind of situation. Like, they packed up all of their stuff in the car and just ran away uh, to Pennsylvania to live with her grandmother. And Christina has said many times over the years that her parents' divorce was actually like one of the greatest things that ever could have happened to her as a kid because her dad was so abusive. And, you know, she was very much that kid who would have to look out her back window to see if their dad was like following their car or, you know, whatever. Like they, they lived in constant fear that her dad would find them and like, try and fucking kill her mom um and her mom would have to reassure her constantly that he like wasn't gonna find them and that you know they were safe and they got away in 2011 she told us weekly i grew up in a household where domestic violence occurred and the greatest gift for me as a child was the day that my parents decided to get a divorce the key to having a happy child is having happy parents kids are like sponges and they take on everything i've talked about how rough things were for me and i'm sure he's heard it he can't be so thrilled about it So maybe one day we can do lunch. I mean, I am 31 years old now. Maybe it's time. Aguilera has seen violence, been hurt, and grown up with pain at home. And it was all at the hands of her abusive father. A lot of pushing, a lot of shoving, tons of fighting and quarreling. Growing up, I did not feel safe. Feeling powerless is the worst feeling in the world. Her mother, Shelly, also spoke about her husband and recalled a horrific incident. When Aguilera was four, Shelly found her little girl with blood streaming down her face. I scooped her up and I said, oh my God, what's wrong? And she told me daddy wanted wanted to take a nap and I made too much noise. My dad was very dominant with my mom and I always knew I was never going to let a man take advantage of me like that. I thought feeling inferior, small or helpless just had to be accepted. And one of the things I will say about Christina is that even though, and I'm going to talk a lot about this, like I have this sort of strewn, 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 (laughs) it's been a while, uh, throughout my notes, That, you know, even though we don't love what Christina Aguilera always has to say. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I do appreciate the fact that even, I mean, this interview was in 2011, but she's always talked about her life in this way. She's always been very articulate and open and honest about her life and who she is and what she thinks and how she feels. Like, 
during a time when women weren't, especially young girls that looked like her, weren't really celebrated for being vocal about things, for being vocal about sexuality and just being women um, and the things that they go through as women, that was definitely not not really the tea at that time. Um, unfortunately, like t- enough time passed that we sort of forgot how trailblazing Christina was in that sense. I can't believe I'm doing this episode. I've got to be honest. I just had a, a real out-of-body experience and I'm saying all these things. Like, 14-year-old me is absolutely quaked right now. But honestly, this show's growth. I've grown in quarantine. And aside from the issues with her dad, I mean, Christina's origin story is that of almost every pop star we've talked about on this podcast in four years. Uh, according to her mom, she would line up her stuffed animals and she would sing to them with an icophone because she was too young to pronounce the word microphone. Um, and she was just so focused on her career at nine. She was so focused. And the adults around her, you know, they had never seen anything like it. And she would get angry if she couldn't perform at the local block parties. You know, it's just, it's the same, like, jargon. Um she was just so driven. She was just so goddamn driven. She said, mama, we're going to that audition. She was driven. I guess in this case, they, they wouldn't be Southern. But to me, every stage parent is a Southern Baptist. And what I'll say in the case of Christina Aguilera is that I actually believe it to be true. Believe it or not. I actually, I believe it. Because when you look at videos of Christina singing as a little girl, trying to emulate Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey's vocal riffs and doing the absolute most with her little hands and the microphone, as I'm sure you know. Just giving you, like, quivering lip, hip-thrusting, hip-popped-out, like, lounge-singer child, there's no doubt in my mind that Christina was genuinely one of those kids who would actually drag her parents to auditions and be very, very cunty about it. You know what I mean? Like, that reads very true to me. Christina has also talked a ton about, you know, music being a coping mechanism for her abusive childhood, um, which is another thing that I actually truly believe from the deepest parts of my spirit. Like, at 10 years old, she was singing, like, a fucking soul singer, and that has to come from somewhere. Like, it... It's almost eerie to look at a young Christina Aguilera and watch her sing This is a Man's World with such conviction because you're like, where is that coming from? And her mom has also said that as a kid, she was introduced to uh, soul music and blues by her grandmother. And it was really her grandmother who like pushed her career. Like her grandmother was the one who noticed that she could sing um Her mom, like, knew that she could sing, but, like, didn't really care. And she's also been pretty honest about the fact that, you know, she was in an abusive... She had just escaped an abusive relationship. She drove across the country with a bunch of shit in a uh, a station wagon to escape her psychotic husband. Um, So she didn't really have time to care about the fact that Christina Aguilera could sing soul music. (laughs) That she was giving blue-eyed soul in the fucking living room. She didn't care. Um, and I actually found that to be kind of, I don't know, I thought that was kind of charming that she was just like, honestly, I didn't care. <laughs> like, <laughs> like she was a great singer, but I, I didn't have time to even really see it because it's just so honest. 
Which actually brings me perfectly to my next point. The fact that Christina Aguilera is missing one major element from her childhood that I'm sure has both helped her a lot and maybe hindered her in many ways. She was not raised in the pageant circuit. Christina Aguilera is not a child of pageantry, if you can believe it. She's not Beyonce. She's not Britney. She's not Justin. She's not Jessica. She's not, uh, she's not, none of it. I mean, she's not that girl. She was not, she was, she was not a pageant girl. She was not taught as a little girl to be artificially charming. So when she was forced to do it as a teenager, she wasn't good at it. <laughs> Christina Aguilera has never genuinely been good at being a charming celebrity or a charming public figure ever. And to be honest, for me, this is what makes her so interesting to look back on. Because now it's like, you know, we're so removed from the whole teen pop thing that it's like when you go back and watch old interviews of Christina Aguilera, she never necessarily comes off as like sweet or or she never comes off as a girl who sounds like she should be in the places she's in. She doesn't sing like a, a pop princess. She didn't talk to people like a, prop, a pop princess. It was always so obvious that she was being sort of forced into this thing where Britney was, I mean, the best at that like cotton candy sweetness with her like yes sirs and no sirs or whatever. And so was, you know, Jessica and Mandy in their own right, you know, but like, you know, when you were Avril or Pink, like you didn't need to be sweet like that because your career didn't revolve around it. But Christina needed to be sweet and she seemed to be white knuckling it through the entire thing. Christina won her first talent show at eight years old. She sang Whitney Houston's I Want to Dance with Somebody, shocker. And she was so good that she ended up doing it every year. And it sort of became her thing. Like she was like the the little queen of this like local like talent show. And that was the extent of Christina Aguilera performing as a little girl. Like she wasn't the kid being taught how to cupcake spin, you know, deep in the South at some fucking banquet hall pageant. Um, and she also became one of those kids who performed the Star Spangled Banner at every local like sports thing. And I actually feel like that is its own weird circuit. If you were one of those kids or if you know one of those kids, please let me know because either I'm crazy or that is a legitimate circuit. Like the kid who shows up at every football game and hockey game and whatever with a, a, a t-shirt that has a scrunchie at the bottom of it um, and they see <laughs> they see the Star Spangled Banner. Am I making that up? Her mom then finally did the thing that all parents of talented children in the 90s and, and, and late 80s did, which was send her audition tape to Star Search, of course. <laughs> because what would a pop star episode be without a mention of Star Search? And Christina obviously got a call back immediately because, duh. Um, Christina had that, like, Whitney Houston thing about her as a child where it was like, it really isn't so much about if she'll become famous, it'll be how she'll become famous and who will be responsible for her fame because she's going to become famous for her voice. And in the tradition of successful people appearing on the show, she of course didn't win, um, but she continued to perform locally. She did some morning shows. You know, she became like the local, like 
what is it like the public access girl you know what i mean which i feel like is a whole nother like that's such a part of becoming a pop star is like you start off as like the public access like pre-commercial break talent or whatever but her real gig was these talent shows and she ended up becoming so known at these local talent shows that and these were talent shows that were being aired locally and stuff you know like they were a big deal for the people who lived in their town in Pennsylvania or whatever but she was becoming so well known at these talent shows that when people would find out that she was performing mind you she's like nine or eight years old they would not show up or they would remove themselves from the show. So sometimes she would enter a talent show and end up being the only kid in the show because all of the other parents in their city would pull their kids out of it because they didn't want to embarrass them. That's how talented she was as a nine-year-old. A guy named Walt Maddox, who was in a 60s doo-wop group called the Marcells, saw Christina perform at one of these local local shows um he was also like probably one of the most famous people from where they lived and uh it was a big deal that he noticed her and and saw something in her and sort of like publicly backed her and you know he would go around telling everybody her name and she was nine um but he would go around you know like trying to kind of boost her up and like give her like a a foot in the door for people to take her seriously as an artist which i think is really cute he also was the one that encouraged her to I mean, to sing the music that she genuinely loved, which was always blues and jazz. And it's like, you know, when you look at Christina Aguilera as a young girl, we're going to get into this like a lot kind of towards the end of this episode. But when you look at her as a young girl, it's like there's this strange world version of Christina Aguilera's life where as a teenager, she actually was allowed to perform the music that she liked and ended up becoming this like Amy Winehouse or like Adele or whatever. You know what I mean? This like late nineties blues singer. And it's it's actually, it's really sad when you picture her as this tiny kid, you know, singing the fuck out of like Etta James or whatever in her living room but then being told that she has to perform Genie in a Bottle against her will by a bunch of older men who don't give a shit about how talented she actually is. It's really fucked up. Now, we obviously have to talk about the Mickey Mouse Club. And I'm always so fascinated by everybody's like sort of singular Mickey Mouse Club story. I have yet to read an uninteresting retelling of what transpired that fateful year in Clearwater, Florida, whatever the fuck. Um, And Christina's grandmother was the one who actually found the Mickey Mouse Club casting call in the newspaper. And of course, Christina nailed the audition because of course she did. Um, But she was too young to make it on the show the first year. And Disney at that time was unwilling to make an exception for her. So she left, she went back to school um, she had this whole period that I, I, I watched a documentary of hers and she had this whole period of being bullied really bad. So her mom actually had to pull her from school. It was like a whole thing, like to the point where when her mom would take her to school, they would time it. They would time it perfectly so that Christina could get to class without getting jumped by girls because 
every single day girls would wait for her to show up at school and they would hide so that they could jump her together because people hated her um and listen i'm not saying that uh, nobody deserves to be bullied nobody deserves to be beaten up nobody deserves to have to time themselves going to school so that they don't get fucking assaulted before they go into class it's horrible but can you imagine how fucking awful christina aguilera Aguilera was as a teenager can you imagine how awful she was as a tween when she had some local fame and was like validated in how beautiful and talented she was and how successful she was going to be holy shit i'm not saying i condone it i'm just saying i'm just saying what i'm saying but they ended up getting another call from disney and that following year they begged her to come back um and they also they basically guaranteed her a spot on the show and the rest is history um and of course it's like you know You've heard the E! True Hollywood story and the behind the music story and the VH1's driven story of the Mickey Mouse Club. We've all heard it a thousand times um, that it was this, you know, big happy family and, you know, that the kids all loved each other. And Brittany and, and Christina were best friends and Justin had a crush on Brittany and Ryan Gosling would play tag with Carrie Russell or whatever. Um, but if you listen to parts one and two of my Britney and Justin episodes, you know, uh, that, I mean, there's a ton that they choose to leave out of those, uh, those stories all the time. Like the fact that the kids were allowed to drink and party totally unsupervised with no parents around. And the fact that they were surrounded by these seedy Disney executives and, and producers who, pretty much had free range over these drunk teenagers. And here's the thing. I respect everybody's fandom. I really do. I respect everybody who lives in their fandom because as a person who lives in mine, you have to respect other people. Like, even though I don't care about Star Wars, I respect people who live in Star Wars fandom because I understand what it feels like to be fanatical about something that you love. But I've got to be honest with you, I don't get the Disney thing. I really don't. Like, I got it in, like, 1995, but in 2020, like, you're still standing a company that has single-handedly churned out more fucked-up child stars than any other corporation. Like, girl, come on. You know what I mean? But that's not to say I don't fully believe all of these kids when they say that this did feel like a safe haven to them because... As adults who grew up in the industry and were all abused in all these different ways throughout their lives, I'm sure they look back and this still feels like, you know, this was such a simpler time for them. It was before things really turned and before their fame got really crazy and, you know, before their lives became unmanageable and this is, they could go outside and they could go to the mall and they could shop and they could go to dinner and have normal friendships. And, you know, they were, they just so happened to be on TV and getting a steady paycheck, but their lives were very normal. Um, and like, you know, when you're somebody like Justin Timberlake and you go from the Mickey Mouse club to working with Lou Pearlman and having a pedophile steal all of your money, 
I'm sure you look back and this does feel shiny and, and shiny and bright. That doesn't that doesn't surprise me. I have a quote from Rolling Stone. This is actually from 1999. This is like the year that Christina was introduced. And I have a lot of quotes from this uh, from this magazine specifically. It's amazing. Um, but it says the new Mickey Mouse Club was a safe haven for Aguilera. Going to a public school in a small town and not being around kids who did what I did made me feel like an outsider. She recalls, I even had to switch elementary schools after Star Search. The jealousy got really bad. People just felt really threatened by me. Kids don't know how to deal with seeing one of their peers on TV following their dreams. (laughs) Oh my God. God, can you imagine what she was like? Christina was such a fucker and you know it. Ugh. Christina was such a little fucker. Like, I'm I'm picturing, I don't know what you're picturing, but what I'm picturing is like lifetime movie kid. Like a little, possibly a little fire starting asshole, just like a little fucker. So fast forward to 1997, Christina is desperate for a record deal. And her mom starts seeking out management. Like they're ready to like get the ball rolling. She's been on television at this point. The Mickey Mouse Club has now ended, and you've heard that story too. Their family came to an end. They couldn't believe it. The show got canceled. They were all told that they were going to come back, and they told everybody from their hometowns, like, I'm taking the summer just to have fun, and then I'm going to go back and film the Mickey Mouse Club. And then it was all over, and they were all locals, local townies with big dreams, again, performing at their local custard stands or whatever. So... At this point, Christina meets this guy named Steve Kurtz. Steve Kurtz, who she later actually ended up suing, which we'll talk about, was her first business manager. Um, He was the first person who really got her, like, legitimate work, and he really got the bowl, (laughs) he got the bowl rolling on her career. Um, She was flown to Japan to record a bunch of uh, songs and demos and stuff with other pop artists. Uh, She was asked to record a song with a, a, who at the time was like the biggest art, the biggest pop artist in Japan. Um, but still nobody knew who she was. Now, mind you, it's 1997, which means Britney Spears is also in LA at the same exact time getting signed to Jive Records. And the thing about Christina's career, and I just think that this is endlessly fascinating is that it's all about, this whole thing is about timing. The The whole, all the pop explosion, Britney Spears becoming faint, all of it is just about timing. And timing plays such a huge part in who Christina Aguilera came to be because the fact that her album came out second set the tone for the remainder of her life. Her story was basically being written the minute Britney put pen to paper at Jive. Let's be honest. The minute Britney Spears signed that record deal, Christina's fate was sealed as her comparison. She was the girl who wanted to be Britney because Britney was introduced first. And because Britney was introduced first, her management got to sort of choose what teen pop was going to look like. And... I, I tried to, um, I don't know, I tried to make sense of that in my Britney episodes, but I don't know if I really gave it what it deserved or whatever, but it's almost easier to explain it from the perspective of Christina Aguilera. 
Britney Spears signed her record deal. She was the first artist in like 10 years to do what she was doing and really the first ever. And her management was able to determine at that point what all female pop would either really super look like or at least pull from for the next decade. So Christina had to live in that. And I just think that that's crazy. This guy started sending her demo out to people and she had recorded I Want to Run to You, of course, by Whitney Houston, of course. There's so many Whitney Houston comparisons coming up, by the way. Um, But she recorded a, a Whitney Houston demo that they sent out to all of the labels and a guy named Ron Fair, who we are going to talk about a lot, who was the head of A&R at RCA Records, heard it. And he said, she was put on this earth to sing. And I've worked with a lot of singers, the OJs, Natalie Cole, Diane Reeves. But when Christina met with us, she didn't care that she was auditioning for a record deal. She got into a performance zone that you can you only see with artists that are more mature. She's like Katie Lang. <laughs> oh, my God. She's nothing short of this generation's KD Lang. And I mentioned that the Whitney comparisons were about to pick up and they are really, really about to pick up because the label had so much faith in this girl's success. They were so sure of the fact that because, I mean, her voice was so incredible, there was absolutely no way in hell she wouldn't make it that they put millions and millions of dollars into songwriters and producers and voice lessons and marketing strategies. They hired an entire team to come in and figure out how to differentiate her from Britney and what was her twist going to be? What's her angle? Blah, blah, blah. Jack Rovner, the executive vice president of RCA, um, said in 1999, we didn't spend any more money on Christina than we would to launch the career of any artist that we believed in. It was enough to get her started. Down the line, the label plans to expose other sides of Christina. It will be as if she's growing growing up by virtue of the singles that we put out. Rovner says, you need an introduction and to be embraced by a passionate fan base. So we went with the more youth-oriented song. But ultimately, we'll be getting into the big ballads here very shortly. And um, I, I just thought that was also an interesting quote because he essentially outed their whole manipulation tactic and how planned out all of this shit is well before the artist even knows what the fuck is going on. I think to say something like that in 1999 is like kind of profound because back then none of us were allowed to know how the sausage was made, right? Like we were allowed to speculate about it, but at the end of the day, like it was none of our business really, I feel like is how they looked at it. And all of the speculation did nothing but make them more money. So when the Disney executives heard the Whitney demo, they contacted her manager and asked if she could belt the highest note in a song that they had possibly for her called Reflection that was going to be on the Mulan soundtrack. So she went in a bathroom and they literally were like, we need you to record yourself hitting the note because we don't believe that you can do it. So she went in a bathroom with a tape recorder. She sang it. She sang the fuck out of it sent it over, and they immediately flew her out to record the song. And I've always found this to be a really interesting chapter in Christina Aguilera's life because it feels so backwards for some reason. Like, when I look back at the Mulan soundtrack and, you know, specifically that song, 
I can't wrap my head around the idea that Christina wasn't famous when I was singing that song in my room. Like, I guess when I liked that song, I didn't know who she even was. I just liked the song because she she wasn't famous yet. That was her first single. At this time, she was just a real thin, bleach blonde stranger with 90s Tory Spelling hair. You know what I mean? I didn't, none of us knew who she was, but we were scream singing that song. And I guess maybe the song became more popular after she made a name for herself. But I very specifically remember loving that song when it was released. It's also weird that Christina Aguilera's first song, which again was not Genie in a Bottle, was a adult contemporary, like, like a Celine Dion ballad. I don't know. The whole thing is just very strange. And I guess when you think about the teen pop explosion, we're so many years removed from it that it feels like all of the albums kind of happened at one time. But Christina's album wasn't really released until well into Britney and the Backstreet Boys being household names. Like Britney had already been on TRL and on Rolling Stone and she had done all of these monumental things before we even knew who Christina Aguilera really was. And Christina's label was obviously feeling the pressure at this point to jump on the teen pop bandwagon. And it honestly makes me wonder what this album would have sounded like had she not been forced to do the teen pop thing. Like, what would she have released? It's just such a weird... As a girl who wanted to release a fucking blues jazz album, what would she have released? Like, would we have been introduced to a teenage Christina Aguilera through the lens of an Amy Winehouse? Like, there's a Strange World version where that happened, I swear to God, and it's just like, it's just, it's, it's crazy to imagine what the world would look like or how different things would be if she was able to release a jazz album. Like, what the hell? I've watched a couple of Christina documentaries at this point, and it's interesting listening to people like Ron Fair from the label explain why he wanted Christina to do pop music, because according to him, it had nothing to do with the fact that they wanted their own version of Britney. No, of course not. They just wanted her to make fun music for people her age that they could dance and relate to, blah, blah, blah. So naturally, they told her to sing a song about being rubbed until she orgasms or whatever. Like, it all checks out. Something teens can relate to. They paired Christina with Diane Warren and a man named Guy Roche. Obviously, we all know Diane Warren, and that feels totally right. Um, And Guy Roche has actually, I mean, he's worked with, like, Celine and Cher and all of the greats, but he's actually mostly known for working with Christina And even beyond this, I think that her relationship with this Guy Roche guy uh, is really, really fascinating because he seems to have been the only person during this time that really, really saw her for who she was. And maybe that's because they did music together and it wasn't, you know, some manager or label head coming in and just listening to songs and then leaving. Like they were actually recording this music together. I feel like they probably had many a night Many a late night in the studio just talking shit. You know what I mean? Just talking shit about these fucking label heads and 
managers and and all of these people coming in and you know i feel like they sat and talked a lot of shit together and they were totally under the control of ron fair so you know i mean they they really had no christina had absolutely no creative freedom on this album at all they were dead set in turning this girl this absurdly talented vocalist who grew up singing this is a man's world at talent shows when she was eight into just another pop girl the music industry is wild because it's such a peek into what men like this ron fair guy actually thinks just like sort of unapologetically of women because not many people in their right mind would hear christina sing but then present her with this over like overly sexual vapid pop song about being rubbed like the potential voice of a generation and this is what you give her to sing and christina herself has of course been extremely vocal over the years about the fact that she had no creative freedom whatsoever during this album and it's why she doesn't really feel a connection to it and you know obviously people love it for the nostalgia but she doesn't have any connection to this to this album or to these songs because they weren't hers and she was forced to do them against her will and you know she was presented songs that she you know was told to sing and then they would be predetermined when they were going to come out by some algorithm or whatever based on how our teenage hormones would relate to what she was saying i mean it was all just so it was all just so like gross now, at the end of the day, Christina Aguilera is still Christina Aguilera, so she did put her foot down and demand some changes be made to arrangements and harmonies, and I think mostly I read lyrics because um, I think the original lyrics to Genie in a Bottle were a little bit different. Um, and by the way, all welcome changes by Guy Roche, like he said in one of the documentaries that she undoubtedly made all of these songs listenable and made them better because she's a fucking artist. And I know that I say this all the time, but it's like, boys, stick to punching the fucking numbers. Like, text me when the documents need signed. Other than that, like, we're good. I'm a singer in the studio with another songwriter, and we probably could figure out how to do this thing me and diane warren should be fine if i had to guess i would say christina was the one who probably added the lyrics about her heart saying no or at least pushed the idea that she's not completely just singing about getting fucked because when she went on her press tour to promote this album she consistently made it pretty clear that as much as she claims you know, to want to be rubbed in the song, she also tells the guy no because her heart isn't in it or, or whatever. Which sounds stupid now, but, like, that was profound to hear a pop star say something like that at the time. We didn't really hear things like that. This wasn't the, a time period of girls talking like that. We were years, years behind that, unless you were Madonna. You know what I mean? It was a whole different thing. After they finished the recording of Genie in a Bottle and it was official and it was done and it was the final version... Um, they decided to orbit not only the album and the song and the music video or whatever, but like sort of her entire introduction as a pop artist around this Arabian theme. And if you are of a particular age, you already know what I'm talking about. Immediately you have images popping up into your mind. 
I know that you remember that when Christina burst into the scene, she, it's like she also wore crop tops and stuff and she also had blonde hair, but her crop tops were beaded and her belly was encrusted with rhinestones. Like, you know, and her hair was blonde, but she also would throw some neon colored extensions in it. Like, she was like Britney's older cousin who had a cool mom who would let her do fuck shit. You know, she was allowed to drink wine coolers and smoke cigarettes. Like, she was the edgy, sort of deeper Britney. Especially during the time that Britney was being marketed as this, like, you know, Southern Baptist values, good Christian girl with an American girl doll origin story, basically. And while we're here, we may as well, like, really actually get into this because it's time. And also, by the way, I've been very decent. Can we talk? 46 minutes in, 46 minutes and 54 seconds to be exact, I have been so decent to this woman, so decent, so honest, so vulnerable. (laughs) Indulge me for a second here. I know that we've had some Britney comparisons throughout the episode, but I've tried to keep them, you know, at a minimum or whatever, but we are, we've now officially reached a point where we have no choice. Now, here's the thing. Christina's people had heard tell that Britney Spears had appeared on a weekly reader called Rolling Stones. And on said cover of Rolling Stones Weeklies, she laid on a bed in her underwear, holding a Teletubby, underage. And it very quickly became the talk of the town. So now, Christina's team is not only scrambling to make an album that kind of sounds like Britney's, but isn't quite Britney's because Christina is her funky cousin from fucking Pennsylvania. But they also have the added pressure of grappling with this like teen Lolita virgin thing that Britney's team has cooked up. They obviously can't use the same tactic. They can't use the same story or the same narrative. They can't market Christina as a virgin. So they have to come up with their own weird thing you know to sell her with and it's so weird to take a step back away from this and view it as a bunch of older men in total control of these two teenage girls everything from what they wear to what they say to how they say it they have millions and millions of dollars invested in them both and they're using them as, the, as like chess pieces, literally as chess pieces to see who can make money the fastest. It's literally insane. And of course you had the other girls, but I feel like Britney and Christina's teams were really only focused on each other. Like Britney Spears didn't need to worry about Mandy Moore or vitamin C, but she did have to worry about Christina. Everyone had to worry about Christina because she, let's face it, Christina Aguilera was overqualified for the fucking job. Like, let's be real. Christina Aguilera was over overqualified for the position of teen pop star. Like, come on. Christina's secret weapon was that she had a voice that would be remembered as one of the greatest of all time. And Jessica Simpson had a gorgeous singing voice and, a, and the girls could sing or whatever. But with Christina, it was just different. And RCA knew that no matter what, Christina could blow anyone out of the water if she was given a microphone. This is a girl whose only brush with fame was talent shows. I keep bringing this up, but come on. 
Her only brush with fame was talent shows that people would drop out of if they found out she was entering. And they asked her to record Reflection for the Mulan soundtrack on the request that she send them a recording of her hitting an impossible octave and she did it immediately, like with no issue. So they used Christina's voice as a tool for marketing in the same way they used Britney's sexuality. And it's just so, it's just so, I don't even know what to say. It's, it's fucking wild. And I guess you could say that, you know, this was technically sort of, this was the first push of the domino for the Britney and Christina feud that went on to last several decades and, and still has this weird, this weird life in pop culture, the Britney versus Christina feud. It starts here. And it's really interesting to peek behind door number two and see what was going on over there because it makes you realize how little the artists actually have to do with any of this bullshit. Like, this is really nothing more than a pissing contest for a bunch of guys who are in a competition to see who has the prettiest pony. You know what I mean? This is how these feuds that we obsessively follow, this is how they actually start. And the version that we get is just so, it's the money-making version. You know what I mean? It's the version that they sit down in a boardroom and decide, like, this is what we'll tell people. And as a kid, I ate all that shit up. And you ate it up too. We ate it like fucking pigs. Honestly, I ate it up. All of the feud stories and the exclusive interviews where they mention each other's names and oh my God. Like, even things as simple as, like, Brittany, Christina has said recently in an interview that she hates watermelon bubblegum. And we read in Impop magazine that you said you love watermelon bubblegum. Brittany, what do you say to the haters? Like, that was the kind of shit that I would be like, um, <laughs> let's all quiet down because there's a, a really important press conference happening right now on the Today Show. Christina's team actually did something really similar to what Matthew Knowles did for Destiny's Child, where they would set up these they would call them showcases, like these sort of high concept, almost like cheap scaled down versions of what her actual stage would look like. You know, if she just so happened to go on a tour or whatever, um, except they were in like hotel banquet halls at like Radisson inns. Um, and she would sing with a pianist for these music executives. And this is another really head scratching moment for me, to be honest, because they chose to showcase her to these executives as blue-eyed soul, which is what she wanted to do, but they continued to lean into her being a Britney 2.0, and you can feel this, this immediate push and pull between what Christina wants versus what the executives want, and it honestly makes me wonder if Christina's younger fans, the younger people who didn't necessarily live through the TRL years of her life. Do her younger fans know the extent of how much this theme reoccurs throughout her life and in her lyrics? Because I feel like so much of why Christina is the cunty diva that people describe her as is because of what she was put through by just wanting to hold a microphone and sing Billie Holiday. You know, it was like she built this really tough wall and this really intense 
tough exterior where she had to defend herself all the time and and fight for herself and it's like these executives come in and they take these kids very simple dreams and twist them into this dark fucked up weird thing and you guys know that i constantly struggle with the back and forth between embracing this time period and loving like the nostalgia and the way that it makes me feel but also being older and as a person in my 30s like I can see the cracks you know and I obviously wouldn't trade what 1999 Christina Aguilera gave to the world in the form of pop culture but fuck like it's, it's a lot to go through to sing a song about being rubbed Christina fought against releasing Genie in a Bottle as her first single because she thought it was vapid and it didn't show the world that she could sing at all. And Christina does also have that Whitney quality where, you know, she'll take the simplest of songs and put some like ex Tina stank on it. But let's be real. This is not a song that showcases the voice of a girl like Christina Aguilera. Like, come on. This is a song that puts her in a rival position for the crown of pop princess. This is marketing. This is strategy. This is record sales. This is money. Like this song represents just greed. You know what I mean? Because she sang this completely against her will. I mentioned earlier this Rolling Stone expose that they did on her in 1999, right after the start of her career. And it's super interesting because, I don't know, I guess I really enjoyed reading the way Christina was written about as a teenager, mainly because it doesn't live in my head the way it does with Britney. So all of it is like sort of new to me or just fully forgotten. Um, But the interviewer talks about her as this sort of blossoming pop princess and how weird it is to be in the world of a blossoming pop princess for a day um and there's this really funny moment where they stop at mcdonald's for a five-piece chicken nugget in a limo which by the way is just like so 90s like all of it um and also just like so christina aguilera to be like i'll have a five-piece nugget like fuck off what's the point um but anyway they pull through the drive-thru she gets her five-piece nugget and and also by the way imagine having to drive a a limo through a drive-through for a five-piece nugget like all of it's a nightmare but anyway they forgot her hot mustard and you know she sort of demands one of her dancers lean over and ask for it um like she's driving through a mcdonald's with in a limo with a gaggle of like yes people in her car And this, you know, she has this entire world orbiting around her and she's 19 and barely famous yet. It says, Christina Aguilera's introduction, Genie in a Bottle, is sugary pop, once heard, never purged, but it doesn't showcase her vocal strength or control. Unlike most teen poppers, Christina can cut it without a multi-track studio. Uh, Image-wise, she isn't the typical red-cheeked kid next door either. She's a teen diva, a kind of legal Lolita, proffering precocious oops did i say that innuendo and belting songs like her life depends on it she comports herself like a pro it's as if she was born with a mic in her hand donning platform booties 
Right now, she's getting sleepy, seemingly overwhelmed by her chow, but that won't keep her from talking about double standards. Brittany and I have shown a little tummy, and it's like, oh my god, she huffs. We've both been called bad influences by some critics, but in sync and the Backstreet Boys, they get on stage, and I love those guys to death, but they'll do repeated pelvic thrusts to the audience of prepubescent girls, and no one says anything. This is my favorite part. It says, Christina looks out the window and seems very far away. I think that I'm eccentric, she says suddenly. I'm like really a deep thinker. It's weird. Sometimes I'll have daydreams of floating and changing my body into all these different shapes, like a cloud, but more beautiful, and flying around the world like an angel, hovering and watching people. Sometimes I'm singing in my daydreams. When I have a hard day, I explore me and this whole imagery side of my brain. Christina wants to be many things, but a pop girl isn't one of them. She wants an edge. I want to shock people throughout my career, she says. I want to be like Madonna. Maybe that's why she has crushes on rock stars. This is amazing. I had a long-running crush on Mark McGrath of Sugar Ray, but that's over, she says flatly. He's totally cute, but his whole preference is arrogance. It's gross. Plus, I'm not digging the way he's looking right now. Fred Durst is cute, can we talk? But he doesn't make me... He doesn't make my crush list. Now, Eminem, can we talk? He's my new crush. And I usually don't go for blondes. But for the moment, she has taken this concept past the idea stage. All I have are my fantasies right now because I don't have any free time. But I do want to date a performer. (laughs) I do want to date a performer. It's important to me that I date someone who understands my schedule and my lifestyle. Mind you, she's 19 and barely has an album out. Coming out of high school, I've had it with these guys who don't get it. There were a few who tried back home, but Aguilera is currently single. And the best part of the interview is that, so after they stop at McDonald's, um, the driver of the limo makes an abrupt stop and Christina's Coke spills on the floor of the limo. So it's like all over the place. And (laughs) she looks down at it and like sort of scoots her foot away from the trail of Coke, looks up at the interviewer and goes, um, could you get that for me? I guess I also think this interview was interesting because this is technically the very start of her career. And even in the very beginning, Christina fought so desperately to show the world that, you know, not only was she smart, but she was a a deep thinker, as she put it, um, who had interesting things to say about the world. And, you know, you could call her a bitch, but you could never say that she was stupid or lacked, you know, the ability to speak her mind or lacked intellect. You know, she was really dead set on proving to the world that she was smart and that she was ahead of the joke. Like, she understood that she was being placed in this pop puppet category, but she herself was ahead of it and very aware of what it was and, like, didn't take it as serious as anybody else. Um, and I don't know, She's all, she always made really interesting points about double standards and, you know, the way women get treated and, you know the way girls get treated in the industry as teenagers. And that was years before ex-Tina made her presence known. So it's profound. Christina made her first ever real, like full-blown television appearance at the first ever Teen Choice Awards. And this would have been her first time ever singing Genie in a Bottle publicly. So this performance is... I mean, iconic isn't even the word I would use to describe it. I personally had never seen it, or I just forgot that I had ever seen it when I was a kid. We have to talk for a second. It is the truest definition of 90s 
teen pop at its... I mean, the Y2K aesthetic in this performance is alive and well. She's wearing denim capris, <laughs> like mom capris. I'm t- and not like cute mom capris. I'm talking full on like pleated front <laughs> mom capris. And she has this beaded, because she's, she's an Arabian girl. So she has this beaded fringe going down the side. She's wearing these like polka dot gap flats. And of course, a metallic crop top. And her hair is both teased, but also flat ironed to absolute hell and back. Um, But I don't know, there's just something really, like now that I've done all this research and I've done all this stuff and I've watched all the things and there's just something really sad about seeing Christina kind of lip sync to this dumb song and do all this cheesy dancing that you can tell she doesn't want to do. It just hits different now. Um, I don't know. It, it, it makes me sad, which is fucked because I love Jeannie in a bottle. I guess I would say that of all the girls, Christina was the one who was the best at mimicking the, in quotes, the Britney thing, right? And I feel like she was rewarded for that. She was rewarded for being so good at mimicking Britney. And it definitely helps me, as an, I consider myself as, as an outsider, uh, understand why Christina is so unforgiving of this time period in her life. And it reminds me of this conversation that I actually had with Hannah Brown when we recorded A Walk to Remember together and she brought up the fact that, you know, we were talking about Mandy and how strange it is that these executives wanted all of the girls to be like Britney, even if they weren't necessarily good at it. Like Mandy Moore was good at so many things and she was only sort of good at pretending to be Britney Spears, but it didn't matter. Like it legitimately didn't matter and I really honestly don't understand it and can we also talk for a second about how fucking weird and damaging and strange it must have been to to be a teenage Britney and your image and likeness has now been taken and packaged in this really almost sort of like like this really dark twisted way that you're this underage like sex doll and not only have you been packaged but you've been mass marketed and not only with products but with people like there are people being created to mimic you so if you're Britney Spears and you're sitting at the Teen Choice Awards and you're excited to be there because it's your first time and you're gonna win a fucking surfboard or whatever cut to 20 minutes into the show there's a new girl named Christina Aguilera who's performing exactly like you and has been style to look like you and is being coached and trained to evoke the same thoughts and feelings that you evoke out of people it is honestly like it's like black mirror when you really think about it it actually is really fucking insane like there needs to be some sort of like i don't know we need a good like pop star film that really 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 goes into detail about all of this stuff now i have foreplayed you to absolute death so I'm going to put you out of your memory. What? <laughs> I'm not. 
correcting that. In June of 1999, Genie in a Bottle was released and was an immediate cultural phenomenon, of course. And Christina came in with this massive single at the peak of the teen pop craze and the peak of the music video era. I specifically remember this video being heavily rotated, heavily rotated, obviously on MTV, but even more so on VH1. Because the thing about VH1s, so like MTV obviously played like all of the chicest videos, right? They played like the music videos and so did VH1, but they also played like adult contemporary. They would play like, it's all coming back to me now by Celine Dion. And, you know, they would play Faith Hill and things like that where MTV wouldn't really. So to be heavily rotated on VH1 was a different thing. It just hit different. On MTV, it was like, it was a given. If you were like a young person, a part of the teen pop thing, you were going to be rotated on MTV. But VH1 didn't like have to rotate you. Like they weren't like heavily rotating B2K. Do you know what I mean? Um, But they chose to really, really play Genie in a Bottle a lot. Genie in a Bottle was the most successful song of the summer in 1999. And you know how I feel about a song of the summer. And I guess the cool thing about Christina was that when she came out, she sort of, she spread herself throughout all of the genres because of the way she sang. Like it was okay for Christina to get played on black radio because of how soulful her voice was. And it was okay for Christina to be played on white pop radio because she was a white pop star, technically in quotes. Um, She was also an adult contemporary girl, depending on what song you were listening to. Um... You know, she was sort of all over the place. I read this really interesting article from this guy named um, Pierre Dominique, Dominiques. Uh, And I guess this person wrote an autobiography about Christina. And he said, the lighting of the music video for Genie in a Bottle prominently featured Christina's golden tresses as her best feature. Although the singer herself was obscured by the dark shadows, suggesting that the record company still doesn't really know what to do with the singer's image. The choreography featured Christina wearing orange pants and a beaded blouse with her dance troupe behind her simulating a genie coming out of a bottle. It was filled with symbolism and her dancing was incredible. And I think music critics appreciated the fact that Christina came in and added this stamp of like, you know, she added substance to teen pop, which at the time just felt so um, sort of vapid in a way, specifically in 1999. Um... And I know I keep making these comparisons to Whitney, but it's like, how can you not? Like, yes, Christina was singing these frothy, meaningless pop songs, but she was letting you know that she could sing the fuck out of them if she wanted to. You know what I mean? If she felt like belting it and making you cry to what a girl wants, she could. And the song was obviously super shocking to people. It was really controversial. And I don't think Christina is recognized um, as often for having a debut single that was, well, debut in quotes, you know what, you know, we've talked about that, but I don't think she gets talked about as often for having a debut single that was as controversial as Britney's, if not more in many ways. Um, but the only difference again was that Britney's just came out first. Her self-titled album was released in August of 1999. It debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 and it was certified platinum. Um, This album immediately obviously catapulted Christina into being world famous, like recognizable in every country kind of famous. 
And the irony of this entire situation, this is my favorite thing, is that the critics applauded her for taking risks and having a better voice than the average pop girl, but they condemned her for releasing an album that was so beneath what she could do vocally. People felt, believe it or not, like what's the point of giving this talented girl a record deal and then watering down her incredible vocals with auto-tune and weird robot voice effects? What is the point? Like, what is the point? And it's just so hilarious that the thing that she's been saying since she was introduced to all these people is what all of the critics agree with. Now, may I read you the most 1999 album review I've probably ever seen in my entire life? This is by Nikki Tratner, a music journalist from 1999 on some pop website that I found. She said, Christina burst into the scene in 1999 with the release of Genie in a Bottle, the first single from her debut album. The song opens the album and is horribly soulless, is a horribly soulless attempt at making this little girl sound all grown up. With enough sexual innuendo, you gotta rub me the right way, baby, to justify the nearly naked, writhing, uh, panting Christina in its video. Old men drooled and 15-year-olds tapped their 15-year-old feet while reasonably enlightened beings scoffed, are you ready for this? While opting to turn on UPN instead of MTV. What a Girl Wants continues the midriff theme, and though annoyingly catchy, seems rather stagnant. Christina's voice is obviously well-cultivated and able, yet here she is holding back. This is a voice clearly caged inside a studio. It's sad, really. And not to beat a dead horse, because I know we talked about this in the recent Backstreet Boys episode that I did with Kelly from the Laguna Biatch podcast, but we obviously have to talk about the TRL of it all. Because Christina was without a doubt, one of the artists that helped build that show. And, you know, it was Christina, Britney, the Backstreet Boys, and NSYNC were sort of grandfathered into this, like, TRL icon status because they helped make the show what it was. And they also played a major part in giving MTV its identity in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, Christina Aguilera literally helped shape a decade's worth of programming for MTV. And if you are of a particular age, you know what I'm talking about. They were sort of like, there were a a certain group of people that were just sort of grandfathered into being the most important people on TRL. And sometimes it was spoken and sometimes it wasn't so spoken. It was just like this understood thing. Now, with that being said, the politics of TRL are also very interesting Because even though that show was designed to connect these like ravenous teenagers with their favorite artists, it also benefited from pitting them against each other. So Britney versus Christina was big business for MTV. It was in their best interest to keep it going and, you know, fuel the fuel the flames. And even though this network was good to Christina and really, honestly, this show TRL kind of gave her a career as it did with all these other people. It still felt like they regularly and very publicly, by the way, chose Britney over Christina. Like in the feud of Britney versus Christina, MTV chose Britney. They didn't choose Christina. And they were very like honest and open about it, which I always thought was really weird. 
And like, again, if you are a 30 year old millennial who knows what I'm talking about, like, you know what I'm talking about. Britney was very much the queen of that show. Very much so. To the point that like when they had that TRL award show, I think they crowned her like the first lady of TRL or something. And I guess maybe that's because it could be because she was there first. But like Christina was there so shortly after that it, you know, it just feels um, looking back like it, it does feel shady in a lot of ways. Now, I'm going to leave you with uh, another Rolling Stone quote from that 1999 article that I'm literally obsessed with and want to frame and put in my house. It says, taut wire snapping while MTV production assistants and headsets stir up more hysteria. Keep the energy up until all the way to the commercial, they tell the frantic tykes. It seems an unnecessary order at a Total Request live taping, particularly when Christina Aguilera joins host Carson Daly on set. As a few audience members approach spontaneous combustion, Daly must gently admonish them. I couldn't get them to shut up today if I tried, he later said. It was impossible. The youngest in the audience, who looked to be about 11 or 12, simply yell, mouths open wide. They look at each other, and after they, after they run out of the air, then they, then they turn towards Christina and begin yelling again. Some of the older members aren't content just to scream. You're Latina! You're hotter than Britney Spears! A girl in the front row shouts. Christina responds, oh, you're so funny. You're so cute. And you're natural, Christina. A fan, vel- a fan belts back. <laughs> Aguilera is here to perform two songs, Genie in a Bottle, of course, and So Emotional, a ballad likely to be the album's third single. It's a number that allows uh, Aguilera to do a bit of scatting. She can really sing, Daly says. Her range is amazing. She can do gospel and R&B if she wants to, and she can really perform. The hook in most teen pop is in the dancing and in the imaging. Uh, the imaging, I don't think I like that. Uh, while the voices are usually only good to fair. But that's really, but she's really talented. Dude, when I was 18, I was throwing rocks at buses. So maybe I'm easily impressed, but I think she's got a long career ahead of her. Carson is not wrong. When Aguilera improvises harmony lines for the crescendo of So Emotional, it's a surreal moment. She stands braced, legs apart, and mic below her chin, mouth wide open and eyes looking upward. The resonant power of the voice bellowing from her tiny platinum frame even drowns out the cacophony of kids screaming. After the show, Aguilera stands by her dressing room with her dancers, sister, brother, and mom. She's ready to head home, but takes a last lingering look at the gaggle of people lined up outside like lemmings to catch a glimpse of her. I used to watch this show all the time while I was recording the album, she says. Uh, she says, standing in the window overlooking Times Square. I would see Britney and NSYNC on it, and I would wonder if I'd ever be on it too. She waves to her fans, and she says, this is why I do it. I was so tired when I came in here, but now my energy is up, all because of them. Today is what I live for, hearing them singing back to me. And let's close out the episode by talking about the singles from this album that are, that are fucking amazing. We obviously had Genie in a Bottle, of course, followed by my personal favorite, What a Girl Wants, Live, Laugh, Love, I Turn to You, and Come On Over. That is such a powerful group of first singles. And next week, I want to get even deeper into the imagery, or the imaging, as uh, Carson would say, of Christina Aguilera, because I feel like it wasn't until the release of Come On Over that Christina was fully realized. Like, even in the What A Girl Wants video, she's still just kind of, like, 
she they don't you can tell that they don't know what they're supposed to do with her yet and it it feels like she's fighting things but also giving into things but when what a or uh when come on over happened it was like I don't even, I mean, it was like Christina Aguilera just fucking exploded on the screen. Like, she raised her hand and said, how about pink platinum box braids? (laughs) Or even better, I want Kool-Aid red extensions underneath my platinum hair. What do you think? Why don't we do some cornrows leading back to a giant white afro? What do you guys think? Um... I think I'm going to end the episode here. It felt really good to do this. I'm going to be honest. I, I, I'm I really, really excited that we have another series happening where it gets, you know, it's just me and you. And uh, yeah, this is going to be super fun. And like I said, I think I'm going to do some album reviews in between because I really want to talk about Christina's albums. I want to talk about her self-titled. I want to talk about Stripped, obviously. Yeah, this is going to be amazing. And I love you guys so much. I'm so excited for this. I hope that you're into it. And uh, yeah, I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Dunzo. This podcast is a part of the Solid Listen Network. Please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. Also be sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash solidlisten for exclusive content. You can follow me on Twitter at Troy McGee, and you can follow the podcast on all forms of social media at DunzoPod. That's D-U-N-Z-O. Thank you to executive producer Molly McAleer and coordinating producer Nicole Matthew. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.